Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In the first half of the 8th century, an army from Arab Spain invaded Gaul and reached as far north as Poitiers in central France. Somewhere near there, they were met by forces commanded by the Frankish leader, Charles Martel. The Arabs lost the ensuing battle and retreated, never to return. We don't know precisely when this battle took place, although it's generally believed that it happened sometime in 732. Even its location is a mystery, and while some historians call it the Battle of Tours, to others it's known as the Battle of Poitiers. The 18th century historian Edward Gibbon believed this battle between Christians and Muslims was one of the turning points of European history. He suggested that if the Franks had lost, the Arab armies would have taken over the entire continent. Perhaps, he wrote, the interpretation of the Koran would now be taught in the schools of Oxford and her pulpits might demonstrate to a circumcised people the sanctity and truth of the revelation of Bahamut. But, it was, the bat- but was the Battle of Tours really such a watershed? And what effect did it have on the future of France and Europe as a whole? With me to discuss the Battle of Tours are Hugh Kennedy, Professor of Arabic at SOAS, University of London, Rosamund McKittrick, Professor of Medieval History at the University of Cambridge, and Matthew Innes, Vice Master and Professor of History at Birkbeck, University of London. Hugh Kennedy, after the death of Muhammad in 632, there was a massive explosion of energy from the Arab world, with, con- with included military conquests. Can you explain how the Muslim army swept through the place so quickly and then entered Spain? Yes, there are two real phases with this. The first comes immediately after the death of the Prophet Muhammad in 632, and there are about uh, 50 years of very swift conquests of the central Middle East, from Iran to Egypt. And then there's a sort of pause in the late uh, 7th century, and then the conquests regain momentum again, and we see the push into the whole of North Africa very quickly. By uh, 700, Muslim armies have reached the Atlantic coast. And then there's another short pause until they start... uh, crossing the Straits of Gibraltar and moving into Spain from 711 onwards. And the same process happened. There's another wave of conquests in the east, which takes them into Central Asia and the south of what is now Pakistan. And then by the year 750, certainly, uh, the, the momentum of conquest has stopped, essentially, and the area that is ruled by the Arab Muslims is approximately the area that's ruled by Arab Muslim governments today, except in Spain and Portugal. Pulling back a bit in that brief and accurate (laughs) resume, when they swept across North Africa, they began to incorporate in their forces the Berbers, who were extremely important to them, in fact, vital to them. Can you explain that a bit to listeners, please? Yes. The the Berbers are the the indigenous people of of North Africa uh, who spoke and still do speak uh, their own uh, Berber language and who tended to be the people of the deserts and the mountains and the countryside. And many of them joined the Islamic armies as they came into North Africa. They weren't Muslims at that stage. Uh, They became Muslims very quickly. Um, Lots of them joined the Arab Muslim armies and probably the vast majority of the people who actually conquered Spain and Portugal were in fact of Berber origin, not of Arab origin. But Arabic was the language they spoke, Islam was the religion they professed. Why do you think they were so effective as soldiers, warriors? They were very highly mobile, uh, they, these um, Arab Muslim armies had no siege trains, they had no caravans of baggage, and they moved very fast, they lived off the land, and many of their conquests were very superficial as well. Uh, they would conquer, receive the submission of people in a certain area, and then they'd move on quickly and find some other area to live off. But... 
By the early 8th century, which is the period we're going to come into to focus on, the regime controlling uh, these forces were the Umayyad Caliphate. Would you tell us a bit about them and their role in Spain? Uh, the, the Umayyad Caliphs uh, were ruling at this stage from Damascus. They ruled all the, land that the lands that the Muslims had conquered right the way from Central Asia and the borders of China right the way through to the Atlantic Ocean. And they maintained at this stage an astonishing degree of control over Spain and Portugal. Given the uh, enormous distances involved, they appointed governors and dismissed governors and people who did bad things in Spain were summoned back to Damascus and made to account for it. And Spain at this time was ruled by a whole series of governors who had very short tenures of office. They were there for two, three years, then they were recalled, somebody else was sent out, and so on, a constant changeover. And this kept it fresh and kept, it, kept Damascus in control? Yeah, very much yeah. so. Rosamond McKittrick, can we now turn to what would become their enemy, <laughs> uh, the Franks, uh, um, in what we now call France? Would you tell us about the emergence of the Franks? The Franks originally, in, within the Roman Empire, the first we hear of them is as military support in the north of Gaul. But the other thing we have to remember is that the Goths were also military involved with the Roman Empire in the south of Gaul. After 476, the Franks actually take control under their leader, Clovis, and Clovis then advances on the Goths who are established in the south of Gaul, who had also become very, very Romanized and established an independent kingdom again after 476. Which That's was when the, the Roman Empire pulled right back. It's the deposition of the last Roman Emperor yes. in the west, and after that, control in Italy is focused there, and the provinces are essentially left to their own devices. The Frankish rulers then push the Goths into Spain as rulers, but it's likely that many Goths remained in that southern part of Gaul, south of the Loire. So there's always a sense in the whole understanding of the Frankish kingdom, Frankish Gaul as it becomes, that this southern part of Gaul has had a slightly different history. But both regions are Christian, both have former Roman inhabitants. The Franks converted to Christianity in between 498 and 496 and 508, there's more disputes there, so that they are a Catholic people ruled by Frankish kings who are known as the Merovingians. Now, all remains fairly expansionist, quite aggressive, very well organised, but in the course of the 7th century, the Frankish Merovingian kings and their political structures begin to be slightly diluted in the sense that the prime minister within the kingdom known as the mayor of the palace, who is an aristocrat, becomes increasingly important. The region has also been divided, more or less, into sub-kingdoms, though it remains a whole from time to time. It's quite confusing for people to register. But Neustria, Austrasia and Burgundy are the three main regions. And the southern part of Gaul, south of the Loire, is bits and pieces attached to these other kingdoms in a way that's quite difficult for us to determine. But they've emerged as a power in, in northern, what we now call France, but moving even further north of that and east of that. It's a different configuration of land, but let's leave it at that for the moment because it's, those are add-ons to the northern France, France idea. And can we just come now to the figure who will be very important in our story this morning, who is the master of the palaces, the aristocrat, Charles Martel. What do we know about him? We know quite a lot about Charles Martel from later Carolingian sources, and they're Carolingian, which is the family he belonged to. So they're family histories which give him big puffs at every possible opportunity. 
The mayors of the palace in these kingdoms, Neustria, Austrasia and Burgundy, were in fact rivals, and Charles is based in Austrasia. His family is from there. His father was called Pippin II, and they're all called Pippin and Charles, which doesn't help us a lot, or Carloman sometimes. But Pippin II had been the mayor of the palace at the end of the 7th century. Charles was his bastard son, and in fact the attempt to hand on your power to your sons under a system of passable inheritance meant initially that Charles had been left out. But Charles comes to some kind of arrangement or simply takes over from his stepmother, Plectrude, takes the treasure and takes over the mayorality after his father died in 714. Does he have a background of being very already, as a young man, an effective military leader? He has only in the sense that he takes part in 714 and managed manage to gather sufficient support from other aristocrats to help him gain power as, to, as opposed to his stepbrothers and step... Um, well, they're the grandchildren of Pippin II. But he had other mayors to deal with. He had the king of the Frisians to deal with and he also had Udo of Aquitaine. So it took him four years to be secure even in the north of Gaul. But once there, then he was able to consolidate his position. And he built a strong position, did he? We're talking about a substantial man in the Frankish kingdom at that time. We're talking about somebody who's militarily apparently very astute, who can command loyalty and is regarded as a leader. Matthew Innes, what was? can we just develop that? What was the state of the Frankish Empire in the early 8th century? Can you give our listeners some idea of what's going on? With the Romes gone, um, well, that's sort of gone. Well, let's say gone. And, and they're rebuilding around the ruins. What, what are the Franks doing that are significant? Well, I, I mean, there are two key developments that are happening at the last part of the 7th century and into the early 8th century. One of them is the sort of internal politics, the struggle for control of the Merovingian palace and the struggle, basically aristocrats struggling. The Merovingian, sorry to interrupt, they, they've, they've taken over... They've taken over... They've succeeded the Romans. Yeah, the, the they, 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 they've effectively succeeded to Roman authority and they're by far the biggest kingdom in the West at this date, particularly after the Arabs take out Spain in 711. So Frankish aristocrats are struggling to monopolise the position of mayor of the palace and I think, as Rosamond said, the key point is there are a series of quite bloody civil wars between different parts of the kingdom um, for control in the last third of the 7th century, out of which Charles Martel's father, Pippin, emerges victorious and establishes himself as mayor of the palace and, you know... Charles Martel's grandsons, Charlemagne, that dynasty continues. We have a problem that the history is written with hindsight... That's very much palace-based politics, struggling for position at the centre. Neustria, which is the key area, is basically the area around palace and its struggle for control to access to the Merovingian king at, palace, uh, at Paris. Later Carolingian sources claim that the Merovingian kings are basically puppets. There is some contemporary evidence that might indicate they have a bit more independent power but they issue independent judgments, for example, but clearly the mayor of the palace is in control. Rosamond mentioned that Charles Martel was illegitimate. Yeah. Uh, how, and I didn't take her up on that, but, yeah. but how significant was that at the time? We told the Roman Catholics, did yeah. the Roman Catholicism play a part in that? It's, uh, I, I mean, it, was it only just worth mentioning, or was it a big factor? It's, it's very difficult to tell because all the sources are written with hindsight. Marriage law, actually, and laws about illegitimacy don't get crystallised until a couple of generations later. The canon law of marriage is basically produced by the Carolingians in the 9th century. So 800 years later, 
being a bastard is a big deal and you do get excluded. At this stage, the lines are blurred. And actually the whole family history and who's whose parent and how that works is incredibly obscure because all of our sources are written with hindsight. So I, my sense is that Martel is an incredibly effective military figure. His father's attempted to exclude him from the succession. As Rosamond said, he comes to a deal with his stepmother and takes control. I mean, I think the, uh, the crucial thing that, to me that happens is, whilst there is all this quite complex infighting around the palace, the regions beyond the core of the Frankish Empire, start to go their own way, and that seems to me to be absolutely crucial to the background to the Battle of Tours and what's going on in France south of the Loire. Can you develop that? Because what we've got is we've got this great Arab surge. They landed in... Yeah. Ju- they sent an expeditionary force to yeah. Gibraltar in 711, was it? Something like that. Yeah, 711, yeah. and they swooped through Spain. Again, swooping yeah. and going. They had to consolidate yeah. it later, but then they cross. Well, they cross. didn't have to. In those are different geography. Never mind. They get over the Pyrenees, and we've got Narbonne and Carcassonne, and they're moving up and up. Yeah. So that's going on there. We've got the Franks in the north. Yeah. Uh, and, but you said that, that it's more complicated than just the Franks. Well, I, what's happened is... In the 6th and 7th centuries, the areas around the Frankish heartland in the north, Paris, western Germany, the Frankish heartlands, the areas around those in the east and the south have developed as what we we call peripheral principalities. They're ruled by semi-independent rulers who are normally sent out by the Franks, marry into the local aristocracies, found their own dynasties, issue their own laws, but are clear that they're not kings, they're dukes, and they're ruling in the name of the Merovingian king. These peoples don't see themselves as Franks, they see themselves as Alemannians, Bavarians in Germany, Aquitanians in Aquitaine. We have Frankish sources actually talking about France south of the Loire being inhabited by Romans and calling the Aquitanians Romans, but when they rebel... They don't call them Romans because that makes them sound legitimate. They call them Basques and use all kinds of sort of racial slurs about people living up mountains. But before we disappear yeah, into yeah. all... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there a sense that the Franks are seen, or are seen at the time or see themselves as the great holding force, the main force that they, they're going to take on if anybody no, has I, to? I, they don't see themselves. I, 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 no. You basically have a very confusing struggle for control of the Merovingian king who has limited power. That, that's the main driving force in Frankish politics. What you do have is these dukes around the edges, particularly in Aquitaine, sort of seeing this infighting and factional fighting in the Frankish heartland and slowly starting to go their own way. And so the sort of then nominally ruling in the name of the Merovingian king, the Merovingian king is becoming less effective. They're effectively ruling on a separate basis. And I think, you know, the crucial figure here is the guy who is coming to control in Aquitaine, South French south of the Loire in the early 8th century is this chap, Jude or Odo. We don't know a huge amount his, about his background, but he's clearly a very effective military leader. And he Re- links up with one of the Berber chiefs, he, he? He makes an alliance with, a Ber- with one of the Berber chiefs. He's also, crucially, one of Charles Martel's opponents. When Charles Martel kind of blags and fights his way to power in the 710s, Odo is actually called in by Martel's opponents to supply um, military might. When Martel um, wins, Odo very quickly comes to terms with him and is left alone. And the sources that we have, which are much later and written from Charles Martel's perspective, say, oh, you know, he cowers south of the Loire and sends peace embassies. He's clearly actually quite powerful in his own right. Hugh Kennedy, um, the... Before the Battle of Tours, if we go back to the Arabs, they'd made a number of excursions into France. Uh, you 
sketched in the nature of the excursions. Can we develop that? Did, they, did these expeditions have... Can, what were the purpose of these expeditions? The purpose of these expeditions was overwhelmingly to acquire booty. In these early phases, the Islamic empire is what we can call a jihad state, a holy war state, in the sense that people were rewarded for joining the armies by supplies of booty uh, taken from newly conquered areas. And this meant, of course, that all the time you had to conquer new areas because you can't get the same amount of booty year after year. And so they were always looking uh, for new districts to, to, to penetrate and so on. And we get the governors of Spain are under enormous pressure to acquire booty for the uh, Muslims in Spain. So they're always looking for new opportunities, new avenues for expansion and so on. And the obvious place is, is, is the south of France. And they, they go around the eastern end of the Pyrenees. They go up the uh, Mediterranean coast to what is now Catalonia, and then they go mostly up the Rhone Valley, where the, the going is easy, the land is flat, and very rich and prosperous. Uh, but in the year 732, if that's the year that it is, they decided to, to, to go further west, and we're told that it was rumours of the great wealth of the palaces and monasteries at Tours that led the Arab governor uh, to take his men in that direction into new territory. But is there a sense, is there a, is an imperial purpose in this in France or even in Spain, or is it a loot, is it always a booty purpose? Because they, they in, in Spain, for instance, not quite soon, but eventually they settled, they made enormous money for being very good administrators and tax collectors, and that seems to be the source of their great wealth. But can we just talk about what's happening then in, say, 730 or something? Are they, are they only looking for booty, or are they thinking, we want to settle here and dominate this place? They're not wanting to settle and dominate north of the Pyrenees, except possibly around the Narbonne area in extreme south France. Uh, they don't found new towns. They don't even stay the winter most of the time. This is a summer expedition going back. The imperative for the governor is to provide booty. If you don't, then people don't get paid, and then they make trouble and mischief. So you have to have a constant supply of booty. Rosamund McKittrick, the exact year is still uncertain, as I've read from the from reading what the three of you have written. But in around 732, uh, an Arab force uh, went further than before in France and ended up around Tours. It's either Tours or Poitiers, they're still... Um, how much is known about that force and its leader? We're told in two separate sources. One is something called the Chronicle of Fredegar, that's the Carolingian family chronicle I referred to earlier, written a good 30 years later about the battle and Charles's progress and his raids. And in parenthesis, I think that the desire for booty and quick rushing raids onto very rich places, if you see Aquitanians as your enemy, could apply equally to Charles. We're also told about Charles's expedition in something called the Mozarabic Chronicle, the Chronicle of 754, which again, as its name suggests, is after the event. They both give accounts of this battle. They, we also have another battle that is referred to very much earlier in other sources, the Liber Pontificalis, Book of the Popes, refers to a battle that Odo, that Matthew was referring to earlier, had fought successfully against another Arab raid in 721 or thereabouts. And Odo had apparently written a letter to the Pope boasting that he had killed 350,000 Arabs and only 1,500 dead on his own part had been killed and wasn't he wonderful? And that gets incorporated into the source and then taken up by later sources and muddled up with 732 or 3, which is why I mention it. But the date 
Fredegar says 732. Chronicler 754 says 733. And Paul Foraker has provided a really very good discussion of this, saying, well, Charles Martel could have been there in 733 with an implication of it doesn't really much matter because the battle actually did take place. But the description in both sources is governed by those chroniclers' perceptions of what happens in battles. Both are Christian authors and both are very, very heavily influenced by biblical accounts. So there's a lot of biblical language in there. So what do we know about the Arab force and its leader? We know the name of the leader. We don't know how many there were. No idea. All it says is a force of Arabs, and it's the same actually with the Frankish sources. We know the name of their leader. We know that there was some alliance with groups from Burgundy who were assisting, and that is all. So we're moving slowly out of certainty into scholarship. Right, let's go. Uh, Matthew, and as what, so we, we, Rosamond told us about the main sources of information. How much do they give you, and how reliant do you feel on them? I mean... Th- th- these these are the two clo- sources close to the event that we have, and most of the other things we have are dependent on and embroidering on these sources um, for propagandist purposes much later. So so we are reliant on them. I think is it always may I say is it always uh, it's always necessary to test propaganda, but yeah. is propaganda always ipso facto wrong? I, I think actually understanding the propaganda is one of the fascinating things about this because, I mean, thinking about other debates we've heard in the news in the past two weeks, history is partly about myth-busting and about testing myths and there's, a clear, there's clearly a lot of myth-making going on around this battle and one of the things we can do as historians is check how that's working and that tells us a lot about what's going on at the time. Yes? It also indicates why people are dressing it up like this. Yeah. So that if you do not get certain strands that you might expect yeah. in the propaganda, then that also is yeah. interesting. This is never presented as a triumph of Christianity over Islam. At the time. At the time. Right. Nevertheless, we have the indisputable fact that our great historian, Bede, mm. thinks it's worthy of mention in his magnificent book at about the same time or just a few months after it happened. He's up in Jarrah, there in the middle of France. He gets the news, he puts it in as a big significant event. Does that... Matter is that important or what? That that, that, that could just be a, a chronological conjunction. Bede needs to finish but his book. He's going to die soon after. Yeah, it? yeah, it's yeah, a chronological yeah, yeah, conjunction, yeah. and he's finishing his book. Yeah, so exactly. I think a chronological it, it, conjunction it, it, is well, all right then. Yeah, but but, but but if if you're Bede and you're writing a history of the Church Triumphant and Christianity coming to England, Bede famously doesn't say much that's happened in his own lifetime, but has quite a you know a, a glossy magazine photo of how great the English Church is in his time. The fact that there's been a defeat of the Saracens a long way away actually really helps him with that plot as part of that story and I wonder if that's what's going on with Bede I mean Bede isn't close to this, he's heard about it and it fits to his narrative agenda The other thing about Bede is that he's been thinking in that particular text on universal chronicle lines in which you set out the history of particular empires and regions It's, it's logical for him to finish off the stories with the Saracens because they've been part of the Christian perception of world history for a very long time Okay, now I'm going to move on here. Okay, I mean you've said you've sort of, as it were, kicked Bede out of the <laughs> equation. Uh, there he was, um, as founder of. Never mind. That's what you and that, you're the scholars. Can you tell us, Hugh Kennedy, what they tell us, chronicles, or anybody else, anything else later tells us about the actual battle? Well, 
there is a story about the battle, and it's the, the, the fullest account comes in the, this Christian chronicle, which is written in Cordova in the south of Spain, in Latin, by a Christian, and presumably has been talking or hearing rumours from people who are at the battle. No Arabic source mentions it at all. They mention the name of the governor, Abdurrahman al-Rafiki, but they don't mention the battle as such. It's only this Christian source written in Muslim Spain that gives us details about it. And it speaks of a confrontation that goes on for some time. It speaks of the Frankish army standing firm as a northern glacier, is the wonderful phrase that, uh, that, that is used. It speaks of uh, days of confrontation, and then one day as, as the armies go to bed and, and then they're tense and they're going to wake up the next morning and carry on the fighting and so on, uh, the Christian army wakes up and they think it's all very quiet on the Muslim side and the, the Muslims have decamped during the night. Uh, their leader has been killed in one of these skirmishes. Uh, they've decamped during the night and they've gone back down south. And the chronicler, writing from Cordova, reproaches the uh, Christians, the Frankish army, for not being more energetic and going after them and, 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 and so on. But you can't help feeling that was a very sensible strategic decision. So we have a, a clear image of the battle. Whether this is what actually happened, of course, we don't know. The topos, the, the idea of the enemy that disappears during the night is, 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 is a, a theme that's taken up in lots of ancient chronicles and in Arab-Muslim chronicles and so on. Mm -hmm. Maybe it just fits. Well, let's keep walking into the fog, uh, Matthew. Uh, can you make any meaningful assessment of the type and size of the forces involved? I mean, we know generally that both the Franks and the Arabs are capable of mobilising large armies. We know that the Arabs have... I mean, what's initially caused this campaign is there is a Berber Arab leader in Narbonne who's allied with Odo in Aquitaine, which neither the Arab leaders in Cordoba nor Charles Martel in the north particularly likes these two marcher lords allying. So the Arabs take out this guy in Narbonne and then start marauding southern France. Odo, who's... Odo apparently is said to call for help from Martel in Aquitaine. Yeah, but can we get to the numbers? Up. Can yeah. we get to the numbers, please? We, 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 we have no idea. We, we, we just don't know. We, can, we know that both of these people can... Um, both of these leaders can mobilise large forces of thousands, maybe tens of thousands, if they have to. OK, let's go to Rosmond. You're, you're very sceptical about all this, um, uh, uh, very. Uh, so I want to try to say how much we don't know about this battle, which Gibbon thought, and Bede thought was worth mentioning. I have to go back. Yeah, father of English history, after all. And Gibbon, um, the second, the, his stepson of, son of English... Anyway, they thought was very significant. So what sort of... Do you ever speculate? An expeditionary force, which is mentioned, sounds a light thing, but the expeditionary force to Gibraltar resulted in the, the first occupation of Spain. So an expeditionary force needn't be a light thing. It needn't be a light thing, and it depends hugely on leadership. And I think one of the interesting things that emerges from both sources is that the, but the thing failed because the leader was killed. Ah, yes. Charles is described in the Fredegar sources. We simply have the battle line. We have no indication of numbers. If one's thinking about the logistics of moving a group quickly across land and feeding off the land, then you can't be talking of thousands, but you may well be talking of high hundreds. It's just something that people make decisions about, and the 350,000 that Odo claimed for an earlier battle just is ludicrous in terms of anything else that we know about battles. The that's why I was wondering, do you, have, do you have other battles around the place that do have numbers? Has this got to be judged in isolation? No, it doesn't, but we do have... The only figures that are offered 
of any kind that have been extrapolated and guessed at, and Thomas Hodgkin has a wonderful sentence about it, is the Battle of Adrianople in 378, where there is an estimate offered of the numbers involved and the numbers killed, and it runs into tens and tens of thousands, and then that is used as an extrapolation. Our chroniclers don't mention numbers very often. For whatever reason, they don't think it's crucial. What they think is crucial is the outcome. It's very frustrating, and we can't even tell from the account we have in the, in the Fredegar source what kind of army it was, whether it involved warriors charging in on horseback, which used to be assumed because it was much more romantic, or whether it's infantry, or whether you've got people galloping to a battlefield and then getting off their horses or whatever. And it's a pity that we can't extrapolate. Now, if you can put other sources together about the way soldiers work and way some descriptions or pictures in manuscripts might help a bit, then you may well be able to get some idea of how battles would be organised. But for this particular incident, we've got the chronicler from Spain and the one from Fredegar, with Christ's help, Charles overturned their tents, and we have the tents again, but it is in the Book of Numbers. Or, and then hastening to battle to grind them small in slaughter. Well, of course, that's what you do in battles. The king, Abderama, having been killed, he destroyed them, driving forth the army he fought, and he won. So, again, it's this leadership. I think if you've got good leaders, then you can achieve an enormous amount. Um, there are... You, you mentioned people didn't know. There was, a, there was an American, Lynn, what's it? Lynn That's right, thank you. Who wrote a thesis about this battle was the, the beginnings of the effectiveness of mounted cavalry. Uh, and this is what won it for the Franks. And uh, he, was, he wrote um, persuasively about it, persuasive enough for many years for historians to go along with him. But they no longer do that. So, or do you, Hugh? Yes, You're so raising your eyebrows. It's very interesting the way this battle has, uh, keeps on resurfacing in the historical narrative. When um, Edward Creasy produced his 15 decisive battles of the world in the eight, 1850, the Battle of, of, of Tours was one of the ones he seized along, along with the Battle of Waterloo and the Battle of Thermopylae and so on. He saw, he saw it as a major turning point. And interestingly, in Creasy's narratives, uh, it's very much the Semites against the Westerners. It's... Uh, Gibbon's narrative is more about religion. Creasy is more about racial perspectives, uh, so in mid-19th century. And then a typically late 20th century, 1962, I suppose that's late, um, Lynn White, writing in America, wants to do a, a material culture explanation of it, a revolution in armed warfare with the mounted knight and all that means appearing at the time of the Battle of, of Tours and uh, establishing mounted knights as the dominant force on the battlefields of the West and all the social consequences that go on from that, the developments of feudalism and, and so on and so forth. And, and that was enormously influential at the time and people nowadays regard it as very oversimplified. And as I was saying, the, the um, only detailed account of the battle shows uh, portrays the Franks as standing like a, a northern glacier. And one thing we know about glaciers is that they don't move very fast. They do melt them. <laughs> the the um, only piece of evidence we have rather plays against the Lynn White hypothesis. But it was enormously influential for about 20 years. Matthew Ennis, why did the Arabs lose the Battle of Tours? I mean, according to the person who's closest to the Arab side, the, this chronicler in Cordoba, he says, there are more Franks and they're better armed which sounds to me quite a plausible explanation. <laughs> and Osman's um, <laughs> idea that the leader was killed and the leader yeah. mattered enormously. The other thing is that a lot of people wanted Frankish swords. Mm. The evidence is actually mostly from the late 8th and the 9th century, mm. but everybody bought Frankish mm. swords, and it was forbidden to export them because you didn't want your enemies fighting with your good weapons. Mm. 
So this was a technological uh, masterstroke, as they it had, were. They like had good weapons. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Frankish swords were sold in Baghdad in yeah. the 8th and 9th yeah. centuries. The only thing apart from slaves that the Western world exported to the I mean, Middle East. It, 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 interestingly, Frankish weaponry has designer names. It's, design, it's the designer gear of this period. You have Uthbert swords with the name of the smith on them, which are like Hugo Boss or something. They are extremely well made. Lovely examples in the British Museum, if anyone wants to go and see them. <laughs> what were the... Uh, can we now move to the consequences of the battle, um, Rosamond? What were the consequences of the battle for the Franks? For Charles Martel... He had achieved a victory. If we can judge from the later records, he got a lot of propaganda value out of it, but he didn't consolidate that in Aquitaine. He may well have gained a lot of extra power and um, influence over the Burgundians who had assisted him, but he had a lot of other fish to fry and other things to do. As far as we can tell in Aquitaine itself, Odo and his sons carried on and actually became even more independent, so it was left to Charles Martel's grandsons, finally, to take over Aquitaine, finally, and incorporate it within the new Frankish kingdom under the Carolingian dynasty. Charles Martel's um, was, was an early member of it after 768. Hugh, <coughs> Hugh Kennedy, was this seen as a great blow to the uh, Arab forces, this defeat? No, it has re no resonance in the, in, the, in the wider Arab narratives at all. It, uh, well, it happened far away and it was not good news anyway, so it, it, it tends to be neglected. What it, it is, is is part of a pattern that, that we see from the whole, all through the Arab Middle East. There's another battle in 751 in what is now Kazakhstan when the Arab armies confront the Chinese armies, the only time that this actually happened, and the Arabs win that battle. But they don't press home their advantage. It's as if this movement of expansion has come to a, a natural halt, so to speak. There are no longer the manpower, there's no longer the volunteers coming and so on. And so in both East and West, Arab-Muslim expansion stops. Uh, in the West with a defeat, in the, in the East with a victory. But the process is the same. But there's the significance of things that things have at the time and the significance that we see they might have had when we look back much later... As you, you're the historian, so you know better than I do. But that is the case. Looking back, um, <clears throat> Matthew, do do people uh, at the time not much mention, not much effect? But the fact is, as you said, they stopped moving north. They didn't come that far up in France again. They went back down, and so on. Is that something? Is that part of the reason why it was built up later for the great legendary? This is the turning of the tide. This is the stopping of the uh, parting of civilizations. Mode. I think uh, I think in the late 18th and 19th century, when you get people like Edward Gibbon, the people who you mentioned earlier, Leopold von Ranke, the foundation of German scientific history in the 19th century, all pick up on this as a great turning point. And I think that's people in the late 18th, 19th century, looking back. It's very much in terms of Westerners versus the others. I think it. I think you need to understand some of it in terms of what's going on with Ottoman Turkey in the Mediterranean in that period, and that, certainly in Gibbon, who's the first person who really writes this up as a major turning point. He has a sort of upward curve of Arab invasions, this defeat, and then they descend into Oriental, um, into lasciviousness, luxury, Oriental despotism in a kind of classic narrative arc. So I think. People in the West are using this as a turning point to define 
modern Western civilization, how it's different to the to the Ottoman world, to North Africa, to the Middle East. I think it's part of modern Western self-definition. That, of course, becomes important because all of these... This is also the time where nation-states are developing national identities, ideas about national history, setting up universities and primary schools, setting up history curriculum, and this gets into the history curriculum as a decisive turning point because it's part of that narrative, I think. But given um, was completely wrong about the Arabs being turned back, after yeah. then they, they flowed into scholarship. Uh, they had magnificent influence, key influence, in the development of what became the Renaissance and so on. And they not only were the translators, they developed ideas in medicine and, and philosophy and all sorts of sciences. So in other ways, it was soft power uh, accelerated. Well, the other factor is that the Carolingians continue to have political relations as well as cultural relations with people in Spain and in the Septimanian region. And once the learning learnt about the maths and the algebra filtering into Gaul in the late 9th and into the 10th century, then they're incorporating quite a lot of the learning and the culture that comes through and also the Arabic translations of Greek material. But it's never a case where, because they are Muslim, relations cannot be conducted. There are trade relations, political relations, alliances of lots of different kinds. It's it's a very complex situation, but an extraordinarily interesting one. Yes, and to take up that point, Hugh, the, what I what we read is that the the, the resistance, the, the the religious resistance, was not there at that time. The the, the fact that these that wasn't there, and the racism wasn't there. It was just battles between these people wanted wanted the treasure, there's people coming wanting the treasure, and then they... So it was... It, it seemed, you both, everybody's got their hand up. I'm asking you the first. <laughs> yeah, well, Can uh, you just unravel that a bit? Because it's fascinating. Yes, I mean, the, the, the booty was essentially the lifeblood of the, the state at this stage. And then it changes. In the second half of the 8th century, into the 9th century, Muslim Spain develops a system of taxation, it develops a system of administration. It's not dependent on raiding in the same way as it had been before. And that's when you start to get the development of this... Um, Andalusian civilization and so on that, that, that you're talking about. But we have the great hanging gardens of Cordoba, don't we, with, with the, the, the three uh, Arabic, uh, Abrahamic sort of religions, yeah, Abrahamic. side by side, a few yards away from each other, yes. and, and in Seville, uh, which suggests a sort of passivity, which, which is quite rare. Yes, it becomes a, a, a largely civilian state, so to speak, with a, a, a bureaucratic system and, and, and so on, which permits people... To, to, to live side by side, at least for a while. You mentioned the Abrahamic religions, and in fact the Islamic groups are, are, are considered in a very similar way to Jewish ones in ethnic terms. They are both descendants from Abraham, and they are a background to the history of the Christians, so that they all the earlier sources talk about them. He says it's, it's not racist. It is in a way. It is a very ethnic understanding of these groups. So they're, they're seen as... They're not Franks... But equally, they're not out of their world because they are a biblical people. And I, and I think in terms of the, the conflict, there's the battle in 732, Odo defeats the Arabs in 720, Charles Martel defeats the Arabs at Avignon in 737. 737 and 720 are written up as Christian versus Muslim propaganda to some extent, as the letter to Pope that Rosamond mentions. But, but what's really going on is you have independent warlords in southern France, you have the Berber leaders at Narbonne, you have the Dukes of Aquitaine, and then you have the people at Cordoba and Paris basically trying to clamp down on the independence of these southern leaders. 
Can we go back for the last couple of minutes to Gibbon? That uh, he, in full flow, he saw this as a clash of civilizations. He obviously saw this as a triumph for Christianity. He saw this as the disaster of people teaching in Oxford today to circumcised persons about Muhammad had been avoided. Um, is that is now is that a period piece, or has it got any historical resonance whatsoever? It, it's a wonderful period piece, and it's not quite as simple as that. Gibbon is um, has a very ambiguous attitude to Christianity, and he doesn't see it as a, as necessarily the triumph of a good Christian force over a, a, a Muslim force. He's he's got his elegant scepticism, which is so typical of him, and I think that's what he's doing. It's a very funny passage in lots of ways, uh, humorous, funny, and um, I think that's one of the reasons why it lingers in the memory. He he also uses the, the point about Oxford is partly he has a difficult relationship with Oxford, and he he has a wonderfully sort of pitched aside to saying which where he basically says, of course, the disputes of these Islamic theologians might make more sense than the sense of the disputes of the Christians in Oxford do in my time. So it's kind of partly him scoring, settling scores. And he, I think you can see Gibbon really taking up his pen and his imagination then doing the rest. He's scrupulous about reading his sources, but he's also wonderfully imaginative in the gloss that he adds to them. And in that passage in particular, you can see him doing it because you know the sources he's read and what he is then making of them. I've actually given you a wonderful, uh, as it were, a wonderful pitch to bat on by putting it so sternly and <laughs> romantically here. Well, I think it's it's a feature of... We were talking about it earlier, of the way in which a sensationalist, very strong interpretation of the particular significance for an 18th-century writer of a particular event. How significant, finally, was this battle? Not very, except that it represents a process. It represents a turning point, as Matt was suggesting, that goes on for maybe 20 years of conflict and interaction. The historians, for these reasons, have seized on this one battle to, as it were, encapsulate, almost personify uh, this, this sea change when Arab-Muslim expansion stops. Well, thank you all very much. Thanks, Rosamund McKittrick, Hugh Kennedy and Matthew Innes. Next week we'll be talking about early Chinese history writing. Thanks for listening. There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4.